Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We are coming to you live in the middle of what could be the third intifada. It appears that Hamas has launched a surprise attack on the occupying Zionist authorities with their headquarters in Tel Aviv. The Gaza Strip has been alight with bombings. We have people paragliding in from the West Bank, from the Gaza Strip, you know, captured air defenses, captured tanks, military bases have been captured. Reportedly, four helicopters have been shot down. We are saying this earlier. It appears there's now just a live Fortnite server active in the Holy Land right now. Uh, this is World War Now, episode 46. We are coming at you with a whole lot of news today, even more than what's going on right now in Israel-Palestine. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great. And yeah, as always, like exciting news. But this week, I mean, it's it's even more live, and essentially the Middle East is on fire at the moment. And typically, like we have spoken about, how the Middle East tends to be rather quiet or has tended to be, especially this summer. But it looks like it's it's really uh, warming up, especially around the Levant and so the Palestine, the Holy Land right now. The uh, the Hamas militants of Palestine, or you know, as they'd like to call themselves, the freedom fighters, you know, fighting for the freedom of Palestine, have in fact broken out of their their cage in which the Israelis have, you know, built a massive fence around Gaza. Gaza considered it's essentially right on the coast of the Mediterranean and it's one of the main residents of the Palestinian people besides the West Bank of the Jordan in the north east corner of Israel. But the Gaza the Gaza city, this territory, right? This like a territory city in and of itself, the Israelis have years ago walled it off with a massive fence and finally this fence has been breached by essentially what we're looking at is roughly around a thousand Hamas militants now actually fighting 20 to 30 kilometers outside of this Gaza designated zone against the against what seems to be like armed Israeli army soldiers so and Israel has officially announced that Prime Minister Netanyahu himself has announced that Israel is at war so on, two, on one hand we have them calling these people terrorists on the other hand they're calling essentially admitting that palestine is some sort of like a state in and of itself and israel has declared formal war on it right because terrorists these i mean they're either on one hand terrorists and essentially militants of a non-existing non-existing state or on the other hand they're actually the soldiers of an existing palestinian government on whom israel has declared war or this is a war on terror. Either way, Israel apparently is in a state of war, and the entire southern Israeli, essentially everything south of Jerusalem, is declared in, in, as a state of emergency, especially the city of Beersheba. Coincidentally, the city of Beersheba was having a uh, apparently a transgender alphabet community festival just a day before this event took place. So while all the members of the alphabet community were sleeping, the paragliders from, from Gaza were actually... Uh, getting over the fence and they took over the nearest military base i think so this is how the this third intifada began essentially it began with a night of sin from the israelis of course not paying attention and the hamas militants have taken over at least in the, in the beginning it was one police station and one military base of the israeli defense force and it seems to have been escalating ever since and we are exactly 50 years and one day out from the beginning of the yom kippur war where egypt and uh, other I guess allied forces against Israel launched one of the biggest threats to Israel's existence, the biggest threat to Israel's existence at its time since its conception in 1948. And as of this recording, I'm sure these numbers are going to go up. We have over four, over a hundred dead, over a thousand wounded. It, 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 this really is like a full-on war. We always do talk. We cover the attacks and the bombings that come from whether it's something from Lebanon, whether it's coming from the West Bank. Usually, of course, then it comes from Gaza. 
there there's skirmishes, there's terrorist attacks, you know, whether it's shootings or truck attacks, you know, there are operations on the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and where the Temple Mount used to be where the Israeli soldiers very often commit what you could describe as terrorism against Muslim and even Christian worshippers there. So this is a very big deal. Netanyahu has said we're in a state of war. The head of the IDF has said we're in a state of war. And now at this point, we're really watching the reactions of, of the other countries involved. And of course, the biggest surprise to me came when Saudi Arabia basically very quickly released a statement blaming Israel for the current aggression, the current provocation and situation where now thousands and probably going to end up being dead. Of course, the UAE was more tentative, called for immediate peace. Uh, the King of Jordan actually appears to be standing with the Palestinians. And of course, Biden has come out in defense of Israel, warning very recently any other outside actors, I think he's explicitly addressing Hezbollah and other forces in Lebanon to the north, saying that they should not use this as an opportunity to open another front against Israel. And as of right now, it appears that Hezbollah is standing by. Uh, I hope we can get this episode out as soon as possible because this is a very dynamic situation. So be sure to follow World War Now Telly on Telegram, World War Now underscore on Twitter. We're going to be covering this, you know, as long as it goes on, right? I remember when the SMO started, I didn't sleep for four days, you know, this may be another one of those situations. And of course, there's a, prophet, there's a prophetic element here because, you know, we're past 70 years of Israel's existence just a few years back. And St. Paisios himself spoke about, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque will eventually be destroyed. And, you know, the state of Israel, the Zionist state will cease to exist. And, you know, this ties into a lot of stuff we've been talking about recently on World War Now and Ether Hour with the new, we're going to get into the new heavenly Jerusalem and how it very much relates to how this war we're witnessing right now could turn out. And of course, Iran obviously is going to be supporting the Palestinians, but of course, unlike all the other countries renamed Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Jordan, Iran is, you know, much more geographically separated from, from Israel. And of course, Syria we're going to discuss this big element of it. Syria is currently tied down with some of the biggest Turkish strikes and Turkish incursions going on. Of course, they're often fighting the Kurds, who are also activated and funded by the United States. So unfortunately, Assad's Syrian Arab army, even if they wanted to assist, you know, what they could, what they would consider their allies in the Israel, in the Israel front, they are very much tied down with what I perceive as an Israeli ally in the, in the Turks and, of course, in the United States. Again, naturally speaking, we do need to mention that Syria, of all countries, does have exclusive gripes of Israel because during the Donald Trump administration, while the Syrian war, while Syria was almost completely divided and almost on the brink of complete, the destruction of its statehood was very much imminent until the Russians, of course, stepped in and began supporting it. There was that, there was the stealing of the Golan Heights and Israel has finally added this extra, like essentially annexed a piece of Syria for itself. So the Golan Heights territory in the north, in the far northeast corner of Israel is actually technically Syrian territory. So in fact, it's not just Hezbollah in the north that Israel has to worry about, but also potentially small <clears throat> incursions of the Syrian army of Assad, possibly if things of course get out of hand. But in terms of numbers, what we're looking at from Hamas, we're not too sure exactly Hamas could gather in terms of overall force, but Hezbollah at least in 2017 had at least 25,000 Lebanese um, militants 
up in the north of Israel, and maybe twenty to 30,000 more reservists, actually people trained in order to fight this uh, holy war against Israel sometime in the future. And the rhetoric, as you mentioned, from Iran has always been anti-Israeli for, you know, you can say the last 50 years since the Iranian revolution. And that rhetoric has, of course, spilled over into Iran's, you can say, satellite organizations such as Hamas. Well, Hamas technically is kind of an own, but Hezbollah definitely has been trained by Iranian intelligence and is pretty much ready to ready to go. And in fact, Egyptian intelligence, um, you know, they've they have sort of spread a message that Hezbollah is ready, is kind of on the standby as they should be, because again, in a hot situation such as this, everybody around Israel needs to be on the on, on the ready. It's it's very interesting how the King of Jordan actually spoke out in favor of the Palestinians, and it maybe even be a precursory sort of comment, just because. If we remember the, the events of Black October and all those events, um, uh, you know, all those decades ago, the Jordanians are somewhat on the receiving end of not just Palestinian refugees crossing the Jordan. If Israel begins really slapping down, you know, their sort of justice on the Palestinian residents of Israel, Jordan will be on the receiving end of those Palestinian refugees. So the King of Jordan does need to kind of paint this message of, well, look, if refugees start coming to us, we will be accepting them and we're kind of uh, a bit more ready to even morally kind of accept them because, hey, look, we're somewhat in favor of of this population and we're in favor of their rights, especially in Gaza and maybe even the West Bank. So I understand the King of Jordan's comments, but you're right. It is surprising because the King of Jordan usually is somewhat pro-Israeli or even very, very neutral. Nevertheless, it's a very interesting development here in, in Gaza. Most countries, of course, have spoken out in favor of Israel, including, um, unfortunately, the president of Serbia and Vucic, countries like Russia, have again commented that, look, neutrality should be sustained and everybody should aim for peace, including Patriot Kirill himself openly stated that, like, a neutral stance should be approached. And, you know, this neutrality is categorized through peace. Essentially, you know, the, the country should return to peace and some sort of peace talk should begin. And maybe a two-state solution should be implemented in the long term. But, of course, we know that the Israeli Zionist state will not will not go for the two-state two solution as they've rejected it many times through various, ignoring various UN, United Nations resolutions since the beginning of the state of Israel in the 1940s. So we know the, the, the way the Israelis want to run things is through a forceful annex, annexation or segregation type style, which is why the Gaza Strip even has this massive fence around it, which is now being apparently, well, sections of defense have been officially bulldozed, which has led to really epic sort of imagery of Palestinian bulldozers breaking the fence down. And, 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 and it is very interesting, this type of combat where and I agree with Alexander Dugan, he says that it's very valiant seeing the Palestinians fight back against the much stronger Israeli army, which, mind you, has not unleashed its full strength as of yet. So at the moment, we are still kind of waiting for the Israeli response and waiting for Netanyahu, whose office was in much strife recently politically, as you know, like Conrad, we've covered it somewhat, that Israel politically is very divided. They have a very intense, you could say, parliament with very many different factions. And recently they have had the judicial dispute, their supreme slash high court has been, they've had a lot of issues politically and judicially speaking. So Netanyahu's prime ministership and his one, his party rule is very much in question. And this is a huge breach of, I guess, Israeli security, right? Unless this was some inside job psyop, but it looks like Israeli security, Israeli intelligence did not see this coming. And I know it was the Shabbat too. Mind you, it's Saturday, it's a Shabbat. So, um, you know, most Jews simply, and Orthodox Jews simply don't really work or put in any sort of effort on this uh, allegedly alleged holy day. So exactly who messed up here, the Israelis will be probably looking into this particular breach of security, or it will just develop into an outright war and nobody will have time to frankly even investigate 
what exactly took place in the first instance. Yeah, I mean, the questions of where this came about, how it was such a surprise, those are spinning around, of course. It is obvious that this isn't a massive, you know, trans-Muslim, you know, operation. Obviously, the Palestinian authorities didn't even necessarily have Hamas to start this with, so it's very much grassroots from within Palestine itself. But I think some have commented that this is coming on the Palestinians getting word of a big possible uh, deal coming between Saudi Arabia and Israel and other groups brokered by the United States. So uh, some are saying this could be a big last-ditch attempt. You know, others are saying this is, you know, this has been planned for a while because of, you know, its relation to with the one in the, the Yom Kippur War in the 1960s. And um, as of right now, it appears that Biden has signed over $8 billion in weapons support to Israel. You know, of course, this comes as Biden has toned down his support for sending weapons to Zelensky. So, of course, uh, perhaps this is part of the off-ramp, is now we need to support Israel against its fight against, you know, the Iranian-funded menace, whether, you know, that's, you know, Syrian. Because remember, I mean, you, you mentioned Syria's grief for the Golan Heights. Syria had, would have more of a pretext to launch an attack like this on it. Israel bombs the Damascus airport and Syrian territory all the time, basically every week. So I think it's very clear that without all of the nonsense going on in the north and the ISIS remnants going on in the east of Syria, the uh, the Syrian Arab army could very well be assisting the assisting the Palestinian forces, at least peripherally, maybe not engaging territory itself, because of course the Syrian Arab army and Assad's main benefactors are Putin, and Putin does not want to see, I don't think, the Zionist state fall, unfortunately, despite the fact that it is getting weaker than ever. You know, Israel has, you know, barring some big deal that I just mentioned, Israel has been on the retreat from its foreign policy perspective recently. And in general, they are not, you know, as powerful as they were definitely during the Trump administration. And if this leads to a further deterioration, like you said, with relations with Saudi Arabia and Jordan and these other places, it would seem that, you know, with the exception of moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and I guess the recognition of the Golan Heights, that the Abraham Accords did nothing more than to serve a, you know, lead to a big problem for the Israeli people who are now isolated and under a united assault from a Muslim front. We're just going to have to see how it goes. Yeah, and of course, what's happening on the ground now will, of course, only encourage at least those those Jews who are very fervently Zionist to defend their own state. So let's let's not make any mistakes. It's not like Israel is somehow losing morale. Yes, Israel does have a lot of you know members of the alphabet community. We mentioned how Tel Aviv is twenty five percent, essentially twenty five percent of the residents of Tel Aviv actually consider themselves members of that particular rainbow community, which is very bizarre. So it's almost the most populated um, you know, country of those particular people per capita. You know, the, the festival, which was happening right outside of Gaza as well, is evidence of that. And also the fact that um, the majority of Israel is literally triple or quadruple vaxxed as well, which so they took on basically every single trait of the general Western ideology that they could. But on top of that, they also have that almost like a Second Amendment type vision where every Israeli man has military training. Every Israeli man, even women actually, are typically, um, they are trained in how to use assault rifles. They have assault rifles at home. They have very broad weapons rights. And so in fact, as soon as these, as soon as the Hamas essentially breaks through, if they do push out further than say 30 kilometers out of Gaza, what they'll encounter is essentially some populations of Orthodox Jews, as well as even secular Jews who are armed to the teeth. And you'll have 
house-to-house -house combat and essentially carnage of a type that, you know, we hypothetically speak of if, you know, the United States has ever essentially invaded on the ground, which, you know, essentially is why Israel was essentially probably even took on this doctrine of arming and preparing all of its citizens for this potential um, breakthrough in case any, any, any hostile Arab army, either from the north, from the east, or from the south, ever made it this far. And so that's essentially what we're going to see. And all that footage, like, again, this is only, we're recording this eight hours after the event has begun, but we have footage of dead, what seem, they look like dead civilians um, in, in gruesome places, for example, on fences, on roads, or by the roadside. And you're not sure who exactly killed them or murdered them, but people need to make sure that they understand these people may not have been unarmed civilians. They may have been actually armed and actually shooting back either at Hamas or at the IDF. And it's hard to even ethnically tell apart who's who, right? Because you have these Middle Eastern Jews who look exactly like the Palestinian Arabs, right? So even physically, they almost look the same. And in fact, it's it's very confusing from the first-hand footage to even tell what has take what has transpired in some of these places. But some of the most, most disturbing footage, at least now, or, you know, less than 10 hours after the beginning of this event, was probably the footage of the Israeli, Israeli military women and just Israeli people being um, Israeli people being kidnapped by the Palestinians and taken back into Gaza and of course some of the Israeli um uh soldiers having blood on them and this is a you know kind of disturbing of course thoughts of like some sort of mass um sexual assault going on in this these particular villages and towns by the Palestinian Hamas like these images do come to mind but again I'm not too sure exactly how the Palestinian Muslims are treating these particular prisoners especially of the the female sex, but it does, we do need to consider that the these images will be used as hard propaganda for the Israeli nation in order to mobilize, and Netanyahu has announced that all reservists right now, all reservists in the Israeli army are being called upon to fight, so the entire, everything is being mobilized, its mobilization is as broad as as that in the Ukraine. Of course, there is no draft announced, but there, is, there are at least 20 to 50,000 reservists being called to arms in Israel, and footage of Israeli women being taken as hostages back into Gaza, into like the den of the Palestinian based in the eyes of the Israelis will be used as propaganda. So there's that to consider too. Yeah, this is, again, we're recording this at the time when there's, you know, a little over a hundred dead, I think confirmed. That number is probably higher than, than it really is. But at this time as well, General Nimrod Ohlone was captured by Hamas, you know, and this is one of those things where if this situation hasn't actually dramatically increased, you know, probably by the time you're even listening to this recording, it, it like it's likely that this won't be going as well as the Palestinian militants would have liked. They're going to need to capture more military leaders, seize more territory, and probably gain the support of Hezbollah, if not something else, because it seems that the United States is not willing to send intercontinental ballistic missiles to Israel, and Israel's, you know, the ground invasion is on the table and we're seeing just this footage from Gaza. I mean, this entire massive, you know, thousand plus person apartment buildings and things are being completely leveled by the Israeli air force. So they're going to like, trust me, they've gotten their go-to and we know that like people talk about the Zionist regime, that they're genocidal. They want to wipe out all of the non-Jewish settlers everywhere in the region, the, even the greater Israel region that we've talked about before, which is much bigger than the current allotment of land that they, that they have. And these are just, again, Gaza is the most densely populated region of the world. And so they're able to just carpet bomb these areas and just take out thousands, you know, of Gentiles who they perceive as, you know, a lot of them perceive as, you know, not really human. So it's, it's, it's really, this is a very dynamic conflict. We're going to be continuing to follow it closely. And it's going to dramatically affect every other conflict, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Armenia, Azerbaijan, even 
Serbia, Kosovo, so well, even China, Taiwan. So we, you know, as we believe, you know, both literally and of course symbolically, Jerusalem is at the center of of the universe, and so this is going to reverberate outwards. Very big world war now moment, and it's very much a possible escalation point for the third world war, if not just a big escalation in something that will eventually lead to a conflict between major states like Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and of course the United States and, you know, even the Western European countries as well. So this is yeah, this is this is amazing. I mean, I'm not saying that positively, but I you know, last night before I went to bed I was just seeing some crazy footage of you know, just the Iron Dome working and huge airstrikes coming in. It looked bigger than normal. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then I woke up and boom, looks like the third intifada, for better or for worse. You know, the, the next big thing has, has really begun. So this is, this is biblical. Absolutely. And I mean, e- even, even some of the, the words being used by both sides, let's just say the, the Hamas Palestinians have actually named this operation, not a special military operation. They've officially called it a jihad. We've seen, so they actually call the operation the, um, the flood the Al-Aqsa flood, and they're saying, look, we're, we're going to flood, and like maybe it's a, even a throwback to Noah, perhaps, but they're, they're saying they're going to cleanse the land of, of sin, and they're going to clear, I mean, their official statements have already mentioned the fact that they're, 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 going, to, they're going all the way to Jerusalem, and they're going to protect the Al-Aqsa mosque from being destroyed because they said the Zionist state wants to build the third temple. Like that, that is the official um, modus operandi of, of Hamas, and that's their mission, is to save the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, uh, you know, from, I guess, an Islamic perspective, that's pretty noble, and it's, it's almost like a, a pro-Muslim crusade of some sort. But, you know, again, it's not like there's an active conspiracy to destroy the mosque. There probably is, actually, but I'm not sure how, how local it is to this particular time frame. But we need to consider, like, from an Orthodox perspective... Uh, just the Orthodox communities living both in Jerusalem and Hebron, all the all the monasteries along the West Bank up north, and even there aren't that many communities next to Gaza, th- thankfully. So that's we haven't seen any footage of churches burning or of you know you know either side actually attacking any Orthodox Christians yet. But if this particular third intifada actually strikes further east, you will hit uh, regions such as Hebron and up north. Jerusalem is apparently very very well protected by the IDF, so Jerusalem is a nut which will be difficult to crack, especially considering geographically it does have a, it's very mountainous. So the Israel Israel probably has a bunch of bunkers as well as different defense mechanisms set up along the uh, southwest and the and the north and the north uh, eastern side of Jerusalem. So it's probably going to be very hard for any sort of intifada, you know. And I'm talking about a really massive escalation here uh, to actually break into Jerusalem at this point. But even places like Hebron have massive Orthodox Greek as well as Russian Orthodox monasteries, which is probably why the Russian Orthodox Church and even Russia itself has reacted very quickly. They know exactly that these communities, which we speak about, and I think it was one of the earlier A4Hour episodes about the Holy, you know, the, the Holy Land and the mission of the Orthodox in this particular Palestinian region has been very active for a long time. So there are churches, monasteries that go way back hundreds of years, and our presence, our Orthodox Christian presence in this region is very ancient. And we've communicated and lived alongside both both the local Jewish populace as well as the Arabs and the Palestinians for you know, many hundreds of years and have figured out ways to communicate and even diplomatically live alongside them. But again, this conflict is kind of outside of our... We can't really stop it, nor should we even participate in it, because uh, either way, it could spill... Uh, it could even metastasize into something which we don't really want to be held accountable for here because we're not actually in charge. So there are no Christians really in charge of Hamas. There aren't any Christians in charge of the IDF. So both sides don't really have any um, Christian guidance from the top 
both sides are, you know, from our perspective, being guided by delusional ideologies. But nevertheless, I also wanted to mention the fact that the technology being used, right? So this is what makes this a bit different to maybe say the Donbass in 2014, right? When the Lugansk and Donetsk rebels stood up against Ukraine is, is because we're seeing these Hamas rebels as, as they captured the the Israeli base. They simply, you know, there are tanks standing there, armored vehicles, and they just begin burning them. So the tanks are being destroyed and not being utilized against the Israeli military, which makes me think that uh, there's a high chance the Palestinian Hamas simply not trained in the usage of tanks or some of these complex vehicles, which is, you know, again, probably a sign that they won't be pushing out very far. Perhaps, the, you know, this conflict will actually end within 30 kilometers outside of Gaza. And the other thing is there was really curious footage of an airbase next to Gaza, an Israeli airbase, where they were actually evacuating whoever the command of the base was that began evacuating uh the, the the jet fighters because of course who would want a palestinian behind you know sitting in the seat of a jet fighter flying it flying it at tel aviv i think that would be a pretty powerful image but again the israelis were like not nah, we're not going to have any of that so they they um evacuated uh all the jet fighter planes from all the airports around gaza away from that particular area which was at risk so southern israel again it's it's very much inflamed at the moment but there is that consideration that look if the Palestinians do win out, and there is that chance, right, providentially, it could happen. We did speak about this in our episode about Heavenly Jerusalem. Even, I think, the Zionist Jews have this idea that there is a small chance, you know, the Israeli regime is pushed into the Mediterranean and it stops existing. And so there is that consideration that, you know, you have the Iron Dome, you have all these defense systems in place against the missiles. But if, if Israel does lose, um, you know, we do have to consider like the Orthodox communities in the Holy Land will need to be living amongst Muslim rulers once again, just like in the olden days. And hopefully the Palestinians will be a, a bit more lenient towards us than, say, some of the Zionist masters who rule over the land now. So I guess there's that consideration that the Orthodox Christians there should simply sit back and maybe not participate too heavily and not get involved because we're not sure exactly who will win. And, you know, it seems like, you know, there's both sides are pretty inflamed and pretty, um, yeah, it's been a long time coming, let's just say. And of course, it's because the Zionist regime has essentially, as you said, Conrad, has essentially aimed to wipe out the Goyim, the the residents of Gaza and the West Bank, and they do not view them as human, nor do they, you know, it's just part of their, um, I guess, ideological extremism and their religious Satanism that they don't exactly view their, their even their enemies as equal in terms of like human rights or even as made in the image of god so there's that consideration so again the fight is the fight is ongoing and i guess it's it's a bit hard to say exactly who will win in the end but diplomatically this is again one more i guess one more mark on the map for the third world war at least what seems to be as an emerging global conflict yeah and i think this is a great contrast i want to bring in we talk about russia how this relates to the russia turkey conflict and i think israel is going to be a key linchpin in that ultimately and the russian foreign ministry really statement said we call for an immediate ceasefire and a peace plan based on our support for the establishment of an independent palestinian state within the 1967 borders with east jerusalem as its capital and turkey said turkey is ready to help de-escalate the israel-palestine tensions and is in an and is in intense contacts with relevant parties to do so. Ankara strongly condemns the loss of civilian lives, calls on the parties to act with restraint and avoid impulsive steps. So as far as I can tell, Russia, you know, same similar statements, Russia seems to be possibly slightly leaning towards the Palestinians as they are supporting, you know, an expansion of their territory in the midst of what appears to be an aggression on their part. So of course, I think that actually aligns with their perspective on the special military operation. It would be you mentioned Serbia as well. Look, Russia is thinking about this, you know, 
They could perhaps view this as a Palestinian SMO to restore them to 1967 borders. And then we have Vucic coming out in total support of Israel, while Israel in 2020 recognized Kosovo. So, I mean, I guess that's a, a good enough, that could be a transition to ultimately talking about what's happening there, but we also have to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. So, what, what, what's your situation, before we move on from this, what's your situation on the, on the support front? Like, where's the line being drawn on, on the sides? It seems that, you know, a lot of people are saying peace, but their statements indicate where they're slightly leaning one direction or the other. Well, I think the those those countries which are very pro-Russia. I think again we see Saudi Arabia, Qatar formally speaking out in favor of is um, in, in favor of Israel only. Oh, sorry, in favor of Palestine only because they do need to support that image of they, they are the the holy places for the Muslim world. They're in the Hejaz and they do need to paint this image of look we support the, the broader Arab world and the Islamic world. But of course we know their main consideration is not for the Arabs, but probably for the money. And it's not even for Islam. It's like the fact that they're huge and successful economic countries. We also see China, China, of course, India speaking out in favor of Israel. We see China very much sitting back, similar to Saudi Arabia, kind of not really taking a side, speaking out in favor of peace. For the, for Russia, though, however, this will be, Russia really needs to, of course, it's taking a neutral stance, but Russia really does need to kind of throw a throw a couple like winks in, Pal in, in, in favor of Palestine, because in fact, actually splitting the attention of the, the eye of Sauron to a different, part on the on the global map does benefit russia greatly simply because well the powers that do support israel primarily the united states and nato you know you want to spread them thin exactly you want their attention to be on multiple fronts around the world in northwest africa in libya in mali that um ECOWAS territory right that's in the sahel region you want them to be focusing on various areas un not exactly on the ukraine which which they have been um you know very very much focusing on for the for the longest time now so again and we know the united states is the main you know is the main contributor of to israeli defense and of course the main donor to israeli uh to the israeli budget you could say from abroad simply giving them was it 30 to 50 billion dollars every single year in american dollars which is absolutely insane but that they've been doing that for the last well since israel became a became a country essentially so it's it's very much curious i think russia understands that president putin understands that so russia cannot be pro-israeli but it does need to again israel does have a large russian population I think over over two million, or I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but there is a very large number of Israelis who actually have Russian citizenship, so they have dual citizenship. Netanyahu himself speaks perfect Russian, completely fluently. His Russian is better than his English. So a lot of Israelis are former Soviet slash Russian Federation citizens, including people like Abramovich. So there is that clan consideration. Putin cannot simply say we support Palestine because there are people around him in the Kremlin who are literal. Israeli citizens, including some of the richest people in Russia. And if you look at the Forbes list, um, most of the Russians on that list are actually um, ethnically Jewish. <laughs> and in fact, they are Russian citizens, but they're also Israeli citizens. There is that dual consideration. But at the same time, Putin and even Shoigu, I think, understand that they need the West to actually distract themselves on this Palestinian issue and kind of drop a bit of that heat off of the Ukrainian front, which again, Putin has, as he stated in the Valais speech, 557 tanks have been destroyed since June. And I mean, Russia is under a very stressful economic as well as military. It's, it's very stressed right now. So it will be, I think, beneficial for there, there to be some international distraction. But nevertheless, I think we should move on to Serbia because it does tie into the fact that Vucic, as you said, um, very... Very much being, I guess, as we called him, the cock of Kosovo. I think that nickname, he's really, he's very much sticking to it. And I think, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a lot has occurred in Serbia over the last two weeks and around the Kosovo region, which um, we simply cannot ignore. 
Yeah, you know, we we had uh, we had slightly, you know, softened on it. We had withdrawn the cuck of Kosovo accusation briefly, but it's back. As, you know, we admit we took a week off, of course, thank you for your patience. But during that week, of course, there was a huge escalation in the northern part of Kosovo and the, you know, ethnically Serbian regions that are still, you know, dominated by their historic ethno-religious group. And basically what happened was a, the news coverage only started when a group of armed men, you know, appearing apparently Serbs, basically stormed the Banska Monastery in the northern region of Kosovo. And this led to a big standoff with Kosovar police. And they, uh, multiple people on both sides were shot and killed. And now the, uh, this has basically led to initially a big escalation. Vucic basically rattling the saber, threatening an actual operation. The head of the Serbian military said that if the president ordered it, we would move in to Kosovo. But of course, then when the U.S. slapped back, said we are considering, you know, sanctioning Kosovo, the EU started considering it. Next thing you know, he started withdrawing the military buildup that had been happening for the past months. And they've basically reduced that from like over 14,000 military personnel to uh, about 7,500 and the goal being eventually down to 4,000. So unfortunately, uh, any buildup of a possible, you know, special military operation for the liberation of at least the northern part of Kosovo has definitely been put into a major setback. And the narrative, uh, again, the main narrative being that this was, you know, Serbian nationalists, you know, basically taking advantage of, you know, there have been these protests, you know, the Kurti has really been overstepping his boundaries with the Serb minority in those northern regions. And so there was a, apparently a patrol, you know, I guess a civilian defense of some kind or a, uh, some sort of uh, just, you know, we've seen these before people uh, going around defending because we've, we've seen atrocities committed by the Kosovo police and others in the past. But Basically, a leader of the Serbian List Party, which is a Serbian nationalist party, you know, in Serbia, it was caught in this armed group of people. However, the dispute comes over basically who shot first. Were the Kosovar police firing on who they perceived as overly armed Serbian militia in the northern part of Kosovo, or did the Kosovar Serbs, you know, initiate it? I'm obviously inclined to believe the Serbs on this one and say that the Kosovo Albanians have increased because this has only worked out for them, right? Like this now makes the Serbs look like terrorists. And now Kurti, you know, Kurti had been on the receiving end of all of the reprimands from the United States government up until this point. And now it's come full circle and now Serbia is under the threat of sanction and everything because Kosovo and the Albanian authorities had been brought under some form of sanctions as well because Kurti was very much abusing the Serbian minority in the north to the point where the U.S., was noticing. So this is a big deal. Obviously, at this point, you know, the monasteries, uh, thankfully, no uh, pilgrims or uh, monastics were injured. But in general, this is very much a big escalation on that front. And unfortunately, it has led to apparently a further militarization on the part of the Kosovar Albanian authorities, because now they've basically declared their that whole region a counter-terrorist zone and are able to storm people's houses. And I'm sure some fairly unseemly actions are taking place. Yeah, and I think the that the positive side of this, and if you can even call this positive, but it does show that the Serbian military is ready to essentially mobilize and take battle positions within essentially like a, a moment's notice, right? You can move fifteen thousand troops to the to the border of Serbia and Kosovo within one to two days and essentially take up set up camp on essentially around half of the territory, essentially half of the border of Kosovo and essentially, you know, 
threatened to threatened to invade, even uh, begin a peacekeeping operation to defend the Orthodox Christians within Kosovo from any sort of aggression on the part of Kurdi or his government or any Albanian Muslim extremists, which, you know, they do exist from the Albanian side. So it's not just that like, the Serbians are the bad guys and the aggressors here. No, it's in fact that, and I'm just going to quote Viktor Orban, who stated very openly in, in a very pro-Serbian uh, comment, he says, the idea of sanctions being imposed on Serbia by the EU is impossible and absurd. The Albanians have been provoking the Serbs for two years. They must behave differently. Don't provoke the Serbs, which is true. Like this is this has been the, uh, as you mentioned, the status quo since um, the, in the 1990s, you can say, and even 1999 specifically, where Serbia has been painted as the enemy and the Albanians have been painted as the victims of the Serbs very explicitly in the area of Kosovo and even Albania proper. So in fact, that the, the fact that Europe and even Central Europe, you can say Hungary, the most, I guess you can say the most, one of the most right-wing countries in Europe is actually rising up and taking a personal stance. Viktor Orban, again, he's a, he's very much an oddball perhaps, but the fact that he's speaking out in favor of Serbia and considering Austro-Hungarian Serbian history, uh, curiously enough, it does paint a very positive picture that, look, Serbia can mobilize and Serbia could potentially in the future even have a, you know, original Western, if not Central European support for some of its actions. Not going to go that far and say that, you know, it would have total support for any actions or special military operations in Kosovo. But the fact that Vucic was weak and he couldn't take the final steps, he couldn't do what... And I mean, Medvedev was weak and during the Georgian 2008 conflict as well. But So it's just the, the fact that leaders can be weak and they don't have that willpower in order to execute certain decisions. That's very much clear. But at least the threat was, was there. Serbia has essentially shown its fangs that look, it's possible that we can bite back. We're not just going to take a beating from the Albanians or be provoked by the, you know, by essentially this fake state of Kosovo into into submission. Like Serbia does have some ability to to strike back at its abusers. So I think that's probably uh, that's probably a generally a positive note. I think despite the fact that Vucic again shows not just in his support for the state of Israel, <laughs> despite the fact that you know Israel does recognize Kosovo as a legitimate sovereign state and for again supporting Zelensky, all this bizarre stuff, Vucic is definitely probably representative of a certain portion of Serbian elites. But there is a, I think a really you could say based and red pill, the very conservative Serbian elite still existing somewhere and i suppose that you know we could see that in the representatives of the bosnian uh, Respublika Srpska, but probably in serbia proper there is that elite as well there and their representative they are pressuring vucic to make some of these i mean you could say awesome awesome moves which you know what we saw a week and a half ago him surrounding kosovo and almost almost sending in the forces yeah, and just an update on what I said before, Milan Radicic, who was the leader of the Serbalist party I mentioned, he was arrested in Serbia, but then immediately released, although he did have his passport confiscated and his banned from entering the territory of Kosovo and Metoya. So that's sort of the situation there. Yeah, the, the Serbs that were involved, they basically fled to that monastery and then were, you know, engaged in firefights with the with the Kosovar police, but they had basically a large armored vehicle, almost like a tank with a mounted gun, pretty serious weaponry. So it was, you know... It was a serious little little firefight that went on there. And you mentioned the other conflict, Srpska. I mean, there's an amazing video of Patriarch Porfiry. He visited Srpska and uh, Dodik and walked around the beautiful city of Mostar, which I think I mean, is probably the most iconic city in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It has the huge Mostar bridge that uh, people jump off of that was, you know, uh, supposedly destroyed by Slobodan Praljak, you know, the Croatian who you've all seen the video of him drinking poison and killing himself in front of the Hague. That's the bridge that, you know, he blew up and he was, you know, going to be sentenced to prison for the rest of his life during during the war there. But 
Patriarch Porphyry and, you know, the uh, Metropolitan of Montenegro, Joanna Kai, they, uh, you know, they very much seem to be not necessarily pushing for a war or conflict, but they are very much standing firm, more so even than the president of Serbia, with, you know, the Serbian people and the people that are being forced to, in some way, shape, or form, whether it's in Srpska, having their leader threatened with arrest by a Muslim government, or being in Kosovo, where their people are now being treated like terrorists by a Muslim government. It's very much another civilizational front in the World War Now universe, you know, the ongoing world of World War Three. But unless you have anything that has to go on in that world, we should probably get to Ukraine and some of what Putin said at Valdai, because there was some very, some very big news. And, you know, the Black Sea has been very active, to say the least. Yeah, I guess uh, the only thing I'll say is that during that time in, in the 1990s, a patriarch uh, Patriarch Paul or Pavel of, of Serbia actually spoke out against Serbia formally continuing the war in Kosovo. He said that, look, Serbia should not, and even I think threatened some of the Serbian commanders of excommunication if they did enter into Kosovo. So in fact, um, there was that side of the church that, you know, in fact, really wanted peace no matter what in, in that particular conflict. And I guess not saying the Patriarch was wrong, but at the time, there was that spiritual discernment that Serbia was very much so stressed out in the 90s that all, all, was, all that was needed was peace besides even more fragmentation from taking place. But again, that's probably more of a historical lesson and more, more like, a, like a historical analysis that needs to take place there. But an analogous to that was 1993. In fact, it was the it was the 30 year anniversary of that event when the, the White House, this is moving back into more Eastern European territory, the White House in Russia was uh, essentially bombed by by the Yeltsin government in, in the Moscow coup of October 1993. And yeah, I, I remember very vividly reading in the news that uh, Patriarch Alexei II actually said that whoever spills blood in this day in October 1993 will be excommunicated from the church. So in order to prevent a civil war in Russia, the Patriarch Alexei II openly stated that he will be excommunicating anybody who will spill Russian blood in those uh, unholy days when Yeltsin actually took over the Soviet Union and completely dismantled it by forcefully attacking the Soviet parliament in the White House, which a lot of Russian nationalists and even Orthodox nationalists were defending that White House, but Yeltsin brought tanks into Moscow. So that was the 30-year anniversary. It wasn't really remembered in Russia, but those are some pretty dark days in the past. Um, nevertheless, uh, those are the sort of interesting opinions we see from clergymen, which uh, frankly, maybe we don't even see today these days, this sort of uh, really hard stance against military conflict where it's just, there's a threat of excommunication coming from top down that if anybody participates. In fact, we, we did see, uh, we mentioned in one of our episodes, um, Father George uh, Maximov actually openly stated that any Ukrainians actually fighting against Russia should in fact, should I recommend that they actually submit and surrender to the Russian forces and they don't they shouldn't be fighting against their Orthodox brothers in Russia. So there's been open calls from the Russian church for Ukrainian soldiers to be surrendering because it's a sin actually to fight alongside persecutors of Christianity against your Christian brothers. So that's kind of the opinion coming from the Russian side. But um yeah, moving to the Valdai, right, Conrad, I think what's interesting is and we we both watched this particular speech of Putin, but Putin essentially for fr almost three and a half hours speaks to a Russian audience uh essentially of a, a, a foreign correspondence as well as local members of the Valdai geopolitical club. And there's a, there's a lot of things that were essentially quite striking. I think the, the general message of uh, multipolarity being the goal of 
of essentially Russian foreign policy was stated. Also, again, the restated objectives of the Ukrainian conflict were given by Putin, which, again, underlines what me and Conrad were speaking about, that the objectives were a bit watered down. We don't see many mention of much mention of the persecution on the church in Ukraine as and the Russia actually stopping that persecution as being a goal. And Putin doubled down on that, and he just said, look, the objective is denazification. He mentioned it at least three times in the two and a half hours of Q&A as well as his opening statement. He mentioned the fact that, well, look, Ukraine essentially wants to join NATO. And look, Russia even wanted to join NATO at one point or another. So he went, he went a bit light on the whole NATO angle, So which was very surprising. He actually spoke favorably in, in, in terms of NATO. And he said, look, NATO is simply following its own interests. And Russia has its own multipolar interests in the world. And then, you know, there were these quite um, explicit statements. I think this is probably the most negative side, right? I don't want to paint the entire Valdai presentation of Putin as negative because generally speaking, it was quite good. The multipolarities talks, very patriotic. His opinion on the Ukrainian SMO, there is no talk of peace treaties here or any sort of uh, disgraceful um, surrenders of the Russian side, which you know I don't think anybody wants that, at least not on the multipolarity end. Uh, maybe if you're a supporter of the Western New World Order, you would be kind of in support of Russia surrendering. But Putin did not give any of those, any of that energy, but he did mentioned something which a lot of Russians found somewhat offensive, including Oleg Tsarev, Paul Gubarov, and I'm sure Strelkov as well, if he had the capacity from prison, he would probably comment on this very, very thing quite explicitly. But Putin, at the end of his presentation, and mind you, it's at the end, so it's about three and a half hours in, Putin's quite tired at this point. He's asked about the plane crash in Tver on 24th of August 2023, when Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin, and as well as the stewardess, the pilot, and some of the other Wagner military group officials have passed away. In that accident, why did the plane fall? And Putin says, well, the forensic chief actually informed me that they found fragments of grenades. So that when the grenades explode, you have the shrapnel fragments in the in the bodies of the deceased. And then he says, well, you know, I'm tying this to the fact that they found five kilograms of cocaine at Prigozhin's house in St. Petersburg. And in my opinion, says Putin, I think they should have had a alcohol and drug test, at least tested the tested the bodies of the deceased for maybe maybe they were under the influence of narcotics and substances. So Putin is, and then he says, well, he says, I'm not really an expert, but one more thing. Putin just says, look, the planes weren't tampered with externally. So he says the planes weren't sabotaged. There was no bombs. The plane essentially exploded through, it, it appears to be Putin is trying to say that Prigozhin, Utkin, the stewardess, they were playing around with grenades while being high on drugs really like a four-time hero of russia as well as multiple other i mean precaution maybe he maybe precaution was actually on cocaine but to think that the uh dimitri utkin as well as some of the other officials were actually taking narcotics on this plane from moscow to st petersburg and they blew themselves up with a grenade i mean it's a very it's a very strange thing that it's very strange for him to say that because a lot of russians found that inc incredibly offensive given that it is 40 days since their death in the Orthodox Church, and they were all Orthodox, the majority of those who passed on that plane. So it's a very kind of solemn time. And then Putin just comes out with this kind of a rude remark. It's, it's almost as if the personal gripes between him and the Wagner group for the 24th of June is still very active. And again, it points the spotlight of the assassination of Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin and the Wagner officials as something that perhaps is an internal Russian assassination like who is in charge was it shoigu there have been different suggestions thrown around and i think the spotlight again it's not on the cia it's not on french intelligence it's not on the Mossad. it's not even on ukrainians at this point it's not even on the sbu it's like well who inside of russia organized this horrendous assassination attempt the spotlight is back on the kremlin and i'm not saying it's putin in particular but there's definitely some people inside who really wanted prigozhin and utkin dead and they succeeded
at this point, nobody's been prosecuted and this still remains one of the most mysterious things. So that's probably the negative side. But yeah, there's some interesting comments about Ukrainian cities as well that transpired. Yeah, this is the first time Putin referred to Odessa as a Russian city, which again, we've been commenting on the slow rhetorical shift towards Odessa being part of the special military operations zone, you know, for a long time now. And it seems that that's becoming real. Obviously, the strikes on the Odessa region and the ports there are increasing. And in general, I mean, Scott Ritter recently said this, that there's sort of a consensus developing that Mykolaiv, Odessa region, Sumy, Chernihov, Dnipropetrovsk, and Kharkov regions are about to be on the menu. And, you know, that's probably what we might be seeing come February when Russia decides to really push back once the Ukrainian counteroffensive is, you know, dead and gone and completely demilitarized. But when it comes to the, uh, yeah, the, some of the speech and, and the Prigozhin situation, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, Putin, you know, maybe he really was just kind of speaking off the cuff and tired. It would make sense after that long of a talk. But, you know, yeah, it's still very mysterious that, you know, this is, you know, it's back in the spotlight with these comments. But people had really forgotten, you know, obviously the Russian forces don't try to make a big deal out of these sorts of things necessarily. And if it was an operation, obviously they'd try to, you know, quickly sweep it under the rug. But yeah, whether it was this or not, there obviously is internal power disputes within the Russian, you know, special military operation within the Russian government. But at the same time, you know, we can never fully dismiss, you know, the 4D chess arguments and some of these things. Because remember, Surovikin, we thought that his new air defense CIS position, you know, he was totally out of the picture. But he was spotted semi-recently in Moscow, you know, leaving a church, you know, asked about his position. And he said he couldn't say that he was just serving the fatherland. So there's a lot of very uh, interesting things going on. I've still, I stand by, you know, there's still a 1% chance you know, they take Kiev and then suddenly we see on our TVs Africa coup style, you know, Surovikin reading a paper with Prigozhin and Utkin standing behind him, you know, in, in Wagner gear, you know, who knows? Cra I, would say cra I would say crazier things have happened, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, I mean, as far as the rest of the situation going on in Ukraine, probably the biggest news is that uh, Russia has relocated the Black Sea fleet from Sebastopol to uh, Novorossiysk and Feodosia, which are basically on the east side of Crimea as opposed to the west, you know, the main deep water port of Sebastopol, which is, you know, the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. We, of course, saw the actual headquarters on land of the fleet, you know, of the admirals and whatnot destroyed by Ukrainian airstrikes. Of course, the admirals didn't actually meet there at this point. You know, it's a peacetime, such more symbolic location, but that, you know, really did happen. And I think the ships have been taking more damage from these intense sort of going for broke drone attacks from the Ukrainians. So this was a strategic move. They're not all the way over in Kerch or anything. So now there's not going to, it's not going to motivate more attacks on the Kerch bridge per se, but they're much more eastwards than they were in Sevastopol. So it seems that, you know, they are trying to preserve the fleet perhaps for a, that eventual, you know, sea invasion of the Odessa and Mykolaiv regions and even the other regions down by uh, Romania. So Big things happening, of course, the Ukrainian counteroffensive completely failing, no territorial gains. Russia is actually gaining territory in multiple directions. Ukraine has continued and increased attacks now on Belgorod, you know, going, doing the more terroristic things. But in general, you know, Ukraine is very much slowly but surely turning into just, just a loss for the West. And it seems that, again, this Israel thing could be an opportunity for them to revitalize their foreign policy image on a winning team because there's again the hamas palestinians are fighting an uphill battle yeah that's right and the of course the ukrainian foreign ministry uh, as we know the ties between israel and ukraine are 
pretty close. Of course, the Ukrainian foreign ministry has spoken out in favor of Israel. So in terms of who's choosing what side, <laughs> Zelensky has in fact chosen the Israeli side, much much to our surprise. Uh, but if a very interesting uh, two sets of statistics that have come out, of course, President Putin officially has given us the statistics of the um, special military operation or not just the military operation, but the Ukrainian counteroffensive. He says, so Ukraine, since the 4th of June, have lost 557 tanks. Just keep that in mind. 557 tanks since June. And he says they also lost 1,900 armored vehicles of various classes and sizes. I mean, enormous amounts of armor, enormous, like billions of taxpayer dollars wasted by the Ukrainian military on what? On Zaporozhye and what? what is it, like 20 kilometers worth of territory gained in the Donetsk Oblast as well as Zaporozhye only? Like almost nothing? It's a, it's a failed counteroffensive. I think we can openly come to these conclusions now that we're three months removed. Essentially all of summer was wasted on, on essentially this Ukrainian uh, failure of an operation, which, you know, much to our uh, delight, I think, mostly because, again, this is all a very, this is all a very degenerate scheme, which Zelensky is throwing around here in the Ukraine. So Putin gives us that statistic and he says also that at least 90,000 Ukrainians have either lost their lives or have been irreparably removed from any ability to fight. So essentially either you know, with their limbs amputated or being hurt so badly that they simply cannot return to combat. So close to, you know, he says 90,000. That's the figure that Putin gives officially at the Valdai speech. So again, um, I don't have any reason to doubt these statistics and numbers, but yeah, heavy losses since June, I would say. Very bloody summer in Zaporozhye and Donetsk, especially for the Ukrainian side, and a bit less so on the Russians because the Russians were on the defense this entire time ever since Bakhmut fell, and so the defense, as we know in warfare, generally always has the advantage, and the Russians definitely have used this advantage to the fullest extent. Another set of statistics very interesting from the Ukrainian SBU. So the Ukrainian uh, FBI slash CIA equivalent has released an open, uh, an open statement that, look, they have 68 criminal cases open against the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And they're kind of flexing in a way. This is almost like an Antichrist type uh, brief that they're releasing. This has 68 cases and 14 of them are against Ukrainian Orthodox Metropolitans. So imagine Metropolitans in the Russian church are even higher ranking than archbishops. So if, if you're a Greek, you may think, well, Metropolitans are pretty high, but archbishops are high. In the Russian church, Metropolitans are considered the, the highest rank in the church behind the patriarchs. So this is 14 metropolitans are being investigated by the Ukrainian feds, which is insane. And they also released other statistics. They said, well, 19 clergymen have been already found of criminal anti-Ukrainian activities, and 19 other clergymen have lost their Ukrainian citizenship. So these are clergymen like Bishop Luke of Zaporozhye, right? Metropolitan Luke, who have in fact ended up on in Melitopol, which is controlled by Russia. And, you know, he cannot return to the actual Zaporozhye city and his diocese. And the Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine, I think, has in fact relinquished his Ukrainian citizenship because they believe he's a, somehow cooperating with the Russian SMO soldiers, which in fact he really hasn't been doing. All he's been doing is administering his diocese, like his diocesan affairs. He hasn't been involved in military at all. So very, very curious in, in, in on that end. So Ukraine has, in fact, openly given statistics. I'm not sure for whom these, these statistics are, right, right? So who exactly is are the consumers of this information? Is this supposed to the fact that they're releasing statistics of persecution so openly makes me think that, well, on one hand, they're sure that Russia won't be using this as propaganda. On the other hand, there are definitely internal consumers who this is supposed to bolster their, I guess, uh, morale of some, of some sort. Like, it is very um, curious and it's somewhat diabolical. Like, the reaction to this from the Russian side needs to be a lot stronger. This needs to be used as, I, I want to say, righteous propaganda of sorts. 
because definitely Imperial Russia would not allow this to happen. If Austria-Hungary did something similar back pre-World War I, the Russian Empire, Nicholas II or even Alexander III would have declared war on Austria-Hungary, or at least would have threatened with war. So you have to keep in mind, Orthodox foreign policy is very, very much always on the defensive side, but whenever there's persecution happening adjacent to a major Orthodox power, the Orthodox Empire has to act to defend their own. And this is, this is not really happening here. And, and again, the Russian, the Russian Federation is not an Orthodox Empire yet, but we're still in that sort of novice adept zone where they have to kind of rise up to the occasion. And this is perhaps that occasion, but we've been speaking about this for a little while. That's just our futuristic hypothetical, um, not really even futuristic, but in fact, the fact that it will transpire and we're simply looking for some of those early glimpses of that, of those future prophecies actually coming to pass. Yeah, and on that front, I mean, at this point, a bill in the Ukrainian Rada has achieved the 226 necessary signatures from people's deputies for a bill that will entirely ban the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to be voted on in the near future. So that's the sort of thing we're working with there. You know, they're, they're, begging, for, they're begging for weapons, they're, you know, drafting and conscripting teenagers and old men, and they think, you know, we're losing this war completely let's just completely declare war on God as well, as if they hadn't already. But it really does seem that, you know, this state is destined for total destruction, for better or for worse. And again, that ties into the new heavenly Jerusalem. Again, we know Putin, you know, there's a large Zionist lobby in Russia. And if this really does go a certain way, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, depending on how much territory had been taken, Putin decided to let a certain number of Israelis come and settle some of these now war-torn regions. Is that, is that a stretch, Dimitri? No, I think it's definitely a possibility. We just need to be aware of it. We need to be very sober and vigilant and not have any roast into the glasses on because that's essentially what all the saints say, right? Don't be under don't be under the influence of alcohol, drugs, or propaganda of any side, frankly. And even even if you think me and Conrad's words are propaganda, um, you know, go and wash your face or, or listen to somebody else because in fact we we advise you seek out if you're really concerned about the information we provide, seek out uh, objective sources elsewhere because we're simply giving you kind of the facts, but also we're giving you a more or less biased Orthodox Christian opinion. But definitely, I think it's far from propaganda. And in fact, uh, I would say you know always speak to your local priest in terms of finding out, finding out, like filter all the information through them, through your spiritual fathers, confessors, never just take any words you hear online, or even, even from us or anybody for that matter, or even in the in the books you read, never take it as, as sort of, as gospel, so to speak, no pun intended, right? Because of, of course, and read Holy Scripture, and of course, read, read your Orthodox study Bible, and just measure everything up against that. And that's always the recommendation, I think. Um, but nevertheless, the heavenly Jerusalem thesis, As a wise man, as a wise man once told me, we should really be, everyone really should only be reading books with the word ST in front of the author's name. Absolutely. And the, and the heavenly Jerusalem thesis, which we laid out, is not even, is not even our theory. It's in fact the theory which has existed amongst the Jewish community in Ukraine itself, in Israel. The Israeli oligarchs have been speaking about it internally. And the only reason we know about it is because members of the Jewish community have openly, verbally confirmed it through people like Zhirinovsky in Russia, through people like uh, former rabbi Edward Hodos, who is now an Orthodox Christian. You can guys you can go find that episode that we've spoken about very explicitly. And I mean, it's a, it's the uncensored episode and a for hours so i think it's already kind of on the table we may even come to explore it later on we do have some more very spicy ukrainian episodes coming around uh, regarding the, the territory of ukraine and those particular groups of people and them boys and how they interact in this particular area historically and some of the backstory because again there's there's definitely a lot of lore 
to be spoken about here historically, just about that particular culture which existed in this in this particular land. But, but nevertheless, this Israeli connection, I mean, it's it's very evident. Israel is at risk of destruction by the Arabic groups surrounding them. It's just the fact that, look, it seems like the enemies of Israel simply cannot coordinate themselves. And this is why, Conrad, you mentioned on previous episodes that Egypt is, in fact, a big recipient of U.S. aid because the Egyptian Arabs need to be kept asleep so they do not strike against their northern ideological enemy. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Egypt, of course, having one of the most powerful militaries in the region, having a very large population, being very wealthy in many ways, being a, both a large African power, having access to the Red Sea, as well as very valuable resources in the Eastern Mediterranean. The U.S. has basically had to pay pay Egypt off to not fully destroy Israel with, of course, they would then be aided by the Palestinian groups, you know, Iran, you know, forces in Lebanon, apparently even there's Jordanians that are willing to support the Palestinians here. So yeah, Egypt has basically been bought off with uh, the golem bucks that the U.S. shells out at the behest of Israel. And I mean, of course, Egypt did get the Sinai Peninsula back, which I think has generally fared better for the for the monks and monastics at St. Catherine's Monastery. Of course, the ISIS scare probably spooked them a little bit, but we know who was behind that, of course, Israel and the United States. So, of course, Egypt, you know, has prepared certain, I believe, in the midst of all of this, they've talked about being very against a potential ground invasion of Gaza, which the Israeli authorities have said is very much on the table. So, again, Israel, I mean, Egypt you know, they have a pretty big incentive to not get involved because of the big bucks flown from the United States. But again, they are still a Muslim country. They are still allied with a lot of countries that are involved in the whole multipolarity project. And, you know, their decision is going to be one of the key factors to how successful any kind of Palestinian resistance to Zionism can be. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's, uh, again, you see the mammon does control many forces in the world, you know, like the influence of money is 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 really powerful, not just in Ukraine. It does seem like it's, it's almost boring because nobody really wants to dwell on economics for too much. But even Putin, like that, Putin was asked, why exactly does Russia still allow for gas to be transited through Ukraine to power Ukrainian factories and essentially fuel Ukrainian vehicles, which then drive over to kill Russian soldiers? And Putin said, well, it's because that gas transits through Ukraine, but it, it, it you know it goes into Europe. That's its final destination, and the Europeans pay us for the gas. And he says they're our contractual partners. We need to keep our agreements, and we need to receive that money. So that was Putin's answer. And he says that look, Russia needs to transit gas for Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine siphons that gas, siphons that fuel, and uses it to fuel its own weapons and its own machine, which then pushes towards the Russian side and attempts to kill Russian soldiers. And, you know, many people have been asking this question, why exactly doesn't Russia just simply destroy all the bridges over the Dnieper, just annihilate any Ukrainian gas, like simply close the valves and have the country um, essentially lose all of its electricity overnight and all of its power, all of its water, and end the conflict in maybe three, four months tops. But in fact, it's not happening because of money. And I'm not saying that Putin's wrong with his economic consideration. Possibly he is very, very possibly, similar to his comments about Prigozhin, inappropriate. But here at least he was transparent and he openly said that, look, we have contractual partners in Europe and we are keeping those agreements alive. And again, the Valdar speech, for all of its positive sides where he speaks out in favor of multipolarity and he actually paints a very light picture for the future of the world. He even says the United Nations has outlived its use. In fact, the only reason the United Nations and the Security Council are relevant today is because there is no alternative. And he says that eventually the United Nations and this globalist project will be doomed to failure, which is great. 
So it's good that Russia has this vision for the future. And it looks like India and China are, are really very much for that as well. Various civilizations acting in their own interests around the world. I mean, that's a positive thing for, I think, all Christians and all people who, you know, all these independent civilizations at once. But there's also that um, consideration that, look, Putin still sees Russia as somewhat adjacent to this Western degenerate culture, which is why he called the United States partners again almost two or three times throughout the entire three-hour interview. And again, verbally people can make mistakes, but uh, we can't help but notice these things. And this should be mentioned that, well, Russia's maybe maybe there is this vision within the Kremlin that there is still a way out, despite all of my comments as well. Maybe there is this like, well, what if we like, you know, take the left, the left bank of the, the Dnieper, which is technically speaking, when you say left bank of the Dnieper, you're talking about everything to the right of Kiev. So to the right side of the Dnieper, technically, even though it's called the left bank. So left bank Ukraine becomes Russian, and then the peace treaty is signed, and then, you know, essentially Russia becomes European again. And European means, you know, slow creep of liberal values, nothing really changes over time, which is which is kind of what we all want to avoid anyway. But, I mean, that's just a long-term prognosis, and perhaps, hopefully it won't transpire, and hopefully we'll see some sort of, you know, orthodox resurgence in Russia, not this dependence on european fiat currency which seems to be like that's the that's the main fuel in all of this right saudi arabia cares about the money qatar as well yeah they, they comment about arabic and islamic independence and arabic islamic rights in palestine but we all know saudi arabia and donald trump's presidency when donald trump literally gave golan heights to israel and you know saudi arabia were quiet about that because well donald trump had the greatest billion dollar deal signed with saudi arabia since the land lease of world war ii so, I mean, money does still run affairs in the world, and that's the domain of the devil. We just have to keep that in mind. I mean, yeah, I mean, this whole, you know, that's, you know the whole Israel question, I mean, it wouldn't be as relevant if the tentacles of Israel weren't in every major institution around the world. And that, of course, involves money. I mean, it's no, you know, it's these are the money changers whose tables Christ turned over. They've had a state now for over 70 years. So, of course, it's going to cause a lot of disruption, you know, sort of in the region. But I kind of want to bring in a new, uh, you know, we're, we're not getting close on time necessarily, but I want to bring in a new element here to cover our main other front. And it really just relates to everything. You know, Turkey is, of course, distracting Syria, which is being helpful to Israel right now. But of course, this all comes in the midst of the more recent, you know, war that came and went, the Armenia-Azerbaijan-Karabakh war, where Azerbaijan has now completely reclaimed all of its internationally recognized territory to the unfortunate reality of the Armenian people living there. We've had, you know, tens of thousands of Armenians have fled the former Republic of Artsakh, returning back to Armenia. There's reports of ethnic cleansing, of course. I have seen some unfortunate videos of you know, Azeri soldiers just unloading their AK clips into crosses set up along the roads and whatnot. So it is an unfortunate reality to see. But as this kind of whole Israel thing spills over into, you know, the World War III question, Iran, I mentioned they're not close to Israel's border, but they are close to Azerbaijan, one of Israel's main allies. So, you know, depending on if Iran really, really wanted to put the heat onto Israel, they could, you know, take take a hammer to Azerbaijan and disrupt a lot of their energy reliance in the, you know, just the things they get from Azerbaijan. And of course, this comes amidst Azerbaijan's pledge that they may be, may be about to recognize Northern Cyprus as an independent country, which they would basically be the first country to do that. And of course, they're Turkey's number one ally, and they would they would do such a thing. And so obviously, uh, this kind of brings into, you know, what if in a broad spectrum, Israel ends up doing the same thing, and to kind of win Turkey to its side, as one of the main Muslim countries that wouldn't be, you know, perhaps against them as, you know, Turkey is a bit divorced from some of the 
you know, Iranian, Saudi, more serious religious stuff. Turkey's not the Turkey is not the wise elder of the global Muslim family. They're the, you know, the the big secular power. So, you know, the uh, the allegiances of each of these countries breaking down on the Israel question is going to be interesting, but I could very much see how, I mean, look, if they recognize northern Cyprus and Israel does that, I mean, the Greeks, you know, the Greeks already, you know, don't love Israel, but they would uh you know, they would make their voices heard in that regard, to say the least. Yeah, of course. We still need to consider the fact that yeah, Azerbaijan, the tu- Azerbaijan is that link between, say, Israel and the Turkic world, the, um, which is very interesting because there are rumors, of course, that pre- the president of Azerbaijan is is in fact half Jewish, or at least that his mother is is a um, a Jewish Azeri, you know, mix. So in fact, there are these covert connections and we know that the jewish community in the soviet union where aliyev was born was in fact very very heavily integrated in various at least for example brezhnev's wife was a jew various various very powerful figures had either jewish spouses or had jewish familial connections it's not like they had to be necessarily members of the hasidic jewish community themselves but simply being related to that particular community gave them even diplomatic ties to Israel, which is why like literally half the Knesset can speak Russian <laughs> at the moment. So the Israeli parliament, everybody, everybody, including Netanyahu, who we mentioned earlier, can speak fluent Russian. There is that, there's familial connections. And in fact, that may be very much active in Azerbaijan. And look, the Azerbaijan's main enemy at the moment, Armenia, it doesn't really leave much to be appreciated, especially given the fact that they democratically, you could say, not that we're fans of democracy, but they seem to be in support of Pashinyan, or at least they were for the last few the last few years, almost a decade, they voted him in multiple times. And in fact, Pashinyan seems to be a complete turncoat. So in terms of like Vucic being bad, uh, Pashinyan is a complete clown. This man has completely lost all credibility, right? So Pashinyan in 2020 visited Lukashenko when Lukashenko won that COVID election, right? And had those, remember Belarus had those public uh, protesting and beatings and things like that. And there was an unelected democratic liberal, like a fake president who was announced in the West. And she lives in Poland, Tichanowska. Well, Pashinyan two days ago visited Tichanowska in Granada and actually um, con- congratulated her, said that, look, Pashinyan's having a holiday in Spain with his wife, who recently went to Kiev to speak to Zelensky and Zelensky's wife. And now Pashinyan's hanging out with a fake Belarusian president in Spain of all places, like the West, the Western of most Western Europe's of the worst birth rate in Europe possible, like, you know, I'm not saying Spain is like a bad place, but nevertheless, it's like the peak of European degradation, you could say. And it's just very symbolic, the fact that Pashinyan, this turncoat, betrays his own people, betrays any sort of international alliances, betrays his, you know, his friendship with Russia, just his rhetoric is just very horrible, and even his actions are worse. And it's just very curious that uh, Aliyev, Aliyev seems to be this like giga chat, almost this brave, heroic figure compared to him. Which is sad because Aliyev is, for, for all intents and purposes, doesn't seem to be a good man. In fact, he definitely has, as you mentioned, Conrad, his own interests. And those interests don't exactly align with those of, say, Greece and even Orthodox countries such as Russia. And Putin admitted so in his um, in his Valdai speech where Putin says specifically, he said that, look, you know, whatever happens in Karabakh now, there are no Armenians left. Putin said there's, what, 2,000 Armenians left in Karabakh, 150,000 left. And he says it's Pashinyan's fault. Putin put all of the blame on actual Pashinyan himself and on the Armenian leadership for not organizing a proper transition of the region to Azeri power. And Putin said that, look, uh, that's simply the case. Um, it's not Russia's responsibility to look after these regions. It's Pashinyan's particular fault that all these tragedies transpired. And so I think it's it's definitely very interesting Putin's particular opinion on the Armenian-Azeri conflict. Well, Putin recently just said that the Russian Federation has been offering Armenia for 15 years a compromise in return of 
five territories of Karabakh to Azerbaijan and two to Armenia. So I guess there's seven constituent parts of Nagorno-Karabakh, and they were willing to give, I guess, probably I'd assume the two most Armenian regions to Armenia and then some of the more mixed regions to Azerbaijan. And I guess whether at one point that was Armenian nationalism refusing that, that, that quickly turned into Pashinyan's snakiness, just rejecting that as a pretext for just completely throwing Russia to the side, destroying the CSTO, and just abandoning your people and God and just everything, you know, you've be, he is a, he is a shame on his people. And, you know, the fact that someone like Qaddafi gets treated one way and someone like him gets treated a certain way, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. But as far as, uh, you know, the situation broadly goes, not to keep bringing, again, the situation is live in, in Israel and everything. So we're going to be continuing to keep everybody updated with it. Clashes continue in the West Bank, you know, there's uh, all sorts of People on Twitter and X are commenting on all of this. We've seen Jordan Peterson say, give them hell, Netanyahu. We're, of course, seeing everybody's favorite based and epic, uh, you know, Bapsphere people, you know, like Zero HP Lovecraft, you know, beloved acolyte of Kostin Alamariu, you know, talking about stuff like, how can you support these, you know, brown invaders against a first world European country? And it's like, okay, like, I, I, we, to engage in this, uh, suddenly we're pro-Israel because we're we're, we're racist. I don't really understand. You know, I don't understand the uh, the logic. I mean, that doesn't or read your twentieth century history. You know, these these things break down a certain way. But I think the you know the this relates to what we recently saw with Elon Musk and the meteoric rise of ban the ADL and then its unfortunate. I don't want to say collapse or failure, but uh, you know the Jewish side of that struggle really really clapped back hard. They brought Elon into a space with Ben Shapiro, Alan Dershowitz, the former president of Israel, and then like six or seven high-level rabbis, you know, the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the head of the Auschwitz Museum, the head of the International Council on Holocaust Denial, the head of like the Council of German Jews, you know, whatever, whatever that is. All of these, you know, ZOA, Organizations of America, basically just major institutions of world Jewry that generally align more on the right end of the spectrum, you know, explicitly Zionist, not so much culturally left-wing like the ADL. They basically brought Elon in and hit him with a very, very kosher struggle session. And, you know, they were trying to get him to come to Auschwitz. You know, he finally gave a tentative yes to one of the rabbis demanding that he come to Auschwitz. And Elon was, you know, he was making a show of it. You know, he was shucking and jiving. And, you know, he was talking about how he has more Jewish friends than non-Jewish friends about how he hopes that all of his Jewish, all the Jewish people he knows have at least three children and all this stuff. And of course, I think he's being fairly neutral on the Israel-Palestine question. And everyone's wondering, you know, how much of this is a game he's playing. He was going pretty hard on the ADL only for, you know, more and more people to get banned. Like the free speech situation itself only got worse. However, you know, Nick Fuentes on his Autumn Groiper account has been allowed to stay alive for a while now. So maybe that's something subtle happening, but... Either way, the fact that this just went down and now Israel is, you know, in a state of war, it's very interesting to say the least. Of course, all the people on the right, even the people in the more dissident sphere, they're being reined back in to the Zionist spectrum because the big donors, the benefactors, the, the uh, movers and shakers, they've called in the support. So everyone from Jack Posobiec, you know, to Ben Shapiro, I'm sure Donald Trump will be commenting on this. Uh, you know, I wish he would, you know, continue to, I don't know, maybe he won't, maybe he'll hold that grudge against Netanyahu for congratulating Biden. But of course, Biden has himself, you know, come out in support of Israel. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a big thing, but you know, we are going to have to, it's not to say that 
you know, there's a vested American interest in completely rooting for a Palestinian victory or anything, but from the Christian perspective, I think in many ways the Zionist authority has had its time and has not proven itself a steward of the Christian holy land, to say the least. So we're watching this very closely, but the American situation, this is going to very much be used to boost the Zionist lobby here in the States, which Israel definitely needs, you know, even if, you know, Russia's has to be neutral on the question, Iran is rising, multipolarity is rising, of course, the China connection, I think, China, I think, is moving more towards Iran than Israel, so Israel needs to boost its support from the U.S. pretty quick here, and, you know, they're probably going to do it. Yeah, I think this public shaming of Elon Musk was very telling, especially you, you look at some of the participants, essentially you had uh, certain rabbis who were completely unknown or even like heralds of certain, you know, not not heralds, but caretakers of various uh, Jewish museums around the world who simply had almost no followers. Even on Twitter, you had people with 900 followers, you know, not 900, small number, but, you know, essentially unknown folks speaking to the richest man alive, essentially educating him pop down about how he should respect a certain people's history, which is very bizarre. It's almost like they somehow took him to school again. And again, we see even the former president, I mean, out of the 12 people they they elected alongside Ben Shapiro to kind of give this presentation, you have the famous American lawyer, uh, Alan Dershowitz, of course, one of the best defense attorneys in, I guess, I guess in modern American history. But you also had the former president of Israel, uh, Reuven Rivlin, and of course, um, as we understand, Shogu's mother's name was also Rivlin. Not that I make that connection, uh, you know. It, I kind of make it in jest, but it, there, you know, that should be considered. We did speak about the Israeli lobby in Russia, but it seems to be that the former president of Israel does have the same last name as Shogu's mother, which I'm not sure if that's if there's any, uh, you know. We can probably dig into that a bit later, but nevertheless, it, it, the shaming of Elon Musk was very much on the nose. Very interestingly enough, they did um. The shaming of the Canadian Parliament also took place, right, Conrad, when they planted, there was this weird Zelensky visit to the Canadian Parliament about one and a half weeks ago, where he actually, and I'm not sure who who this was an embarrassment of, because, again, they rolled out this 97-year-old Ukrainian immigrant into Canada, who was allegedly in Galicia, SS Galicia, when he was 18, 19, which was essentially a stormtrooper, I guess you can say, SS Nazi brigade, created on the occupied territories of Western Ukraine by the Third Reich, to essentially exterminate various um, unwanted groups and to fight various Ukrainian-Russian guerrillas. And so this former member of a Nazi SS battalion was rolled out in the in the Canadian parliament and everybody gave an applause. Putin commented on this and said, well, can you believe this, says Putin? He says, Zelensky, a Jew, suddenly clapped for someone who committed the Holocaust. Did he not think that, what, what does that suggest? That he says, does he not, maybe Zelensky is suggesting that SS Galizia never rounded up and shot Jews? Is he suggesting that the Holocaust didn't happen? And then there was a silence. And then Putin says, that's crazy, that's just really bad. And it's just a very bizarre comment that Putin made. Again, this wild speech, very interesting, but it does speak to the fact that whatever's happening in Western Europe is complete delusion. And the mixing of, on one hand, very pro-Israeli sentiments, on the other hand, this bizarre support for the Bandarite regime, which is a very warped warped view of this uh, anti-Russian, neo-Nazi I guess ideology, which again, it's very active in Ukraine, but it seems that even it's been even active in the Ukrainian immigration. And in fact, it's if anything, right, Conrad, it's a replacement for the Orthodox 
for the Orthodox culture and Orthodox faith for those Western Ukrainian immigrants, because it's like, well, what do you even focus your immigration life on? It's, well, your connection to, I don't know, the, the Third Reich or your anti-Russianness or your banderism, which, again, this is all very much anti-Russian and just bizarre degeneracy. But what happened in the Canadian Parliament? Again, the Speaker resigned. It was just a very strange show. From my perspective, and I almost wanted to ask Father John Whiteford in our interview about this, uh, you know specifically what well, what if that 97 year old former neo-nazi what if he actually confessed and maybe he was even a member of the orthodox church who knows given that he was a ukrainian i mean what what happened in those particular regions in the 1940s that was a long time ago and he probably did commit crimes given that he was a young man in the ss galicia right the stormtrooper battalion but um is it possible for even a nazi to to kind of confess and to be forgiven of his sins. I would say, yes, of, of course, right? We Orthodox people believe that anybody, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Adolf Hitler, anybody could, of course, confess and be, be cleansed and, of course, uh, you know, receive salvation. So it does bring this moral, moral question into play. Like, in the Western world, is there any chance for people to receive forgiveness, even at 97 years of age? And, of course, we Orthodox Christians believe that, yes. But I'm not sure if the Ukrainians even bring this philosophical question into play in fact they're just playing on the emotions of western audiences and it's just a big game for them whereas i think what real christians are concerned about is is there actual forgiveness for people can people move on like me and conrad we believe that even Zelensky, even a, a straight up cocaine addicted degenerate who sent his entire country into war can be forgiven and can actually serve a sentence and even if he is executed for his crimes he could in fact achieve salvation you know, Christ is very merciful. So I'm not sure. So that entire neo-Nazi debacle in Canada, I thought it was just a big embarrassment for everybody involved. There's nothing positive came from that, even for the Russian side. I mean, what did it prove? We already knew that the Banderites and neo-Nazis existed. Uh, again, it seems like a big humiliation ritual of some sort. Well, I just think it's a demonstration that we need to just move on from the stupid World War II dominated narrative. I mean, that's something that happened almost 100 years ago, like from both sides. I mean, because of the because of the Ukrainian situation, the anti-Russia Ukrainian resistance narrative has been boosted so much in the West. Of course, it's going to manifest in Canada, where the Canadian government is basically run by the Ukrainian. The Canadian government is basically run by the Ukrainian lobby. You know, the uh, Freeland and all the people there. I mean, the Banderite legacy there is strong. So many of those people emigrated to Canada. There's more Ukrainians in Canada, I think, outside of Ukraine than any other country. But of course, then. He kind of have the silliness coming from Russia with like, oh, we need to get this guy. We need to get this guy over to the Hague and try him. It's like, look, this guy's 98 years old. He was 18 years old in the army. Maybe he was around for atrocities. Like, let's be honest. Like, what? Almost 100 years later, are we gonna? Re what archaeological evidence are we gonna find to support some kind of atrocities? This is this whole thing is just silly. Like, this guy shouldn't have been ever brought anywhere because he's a veteran of for Canadians. What is basically an irrelevant war. And then for the Russians, they should, you know, I understand that they basically, it's you, you can't not take advantage of that rhetorical strike. I mean, Canada's the most neoliberal government, standing applause for a Nazi regime. You're going to take advantage of it. But, you know, then using this to double down on like the vindictive, I would say, kind of Jewish attitude towards hunting down everyone that even remotely served for the Third Reich, I think that that's a bit silly. Yeah, especially, and it's not really in the, um, I guess it's not even in how Russia even conducted its foreign policy, even pre, because remember, Napoleon was forgiven, right? Napoleon was sent to, to an island at the end of his reign. He wasn't executed. What happened to all the French marshals? They were all, Russia was very much, very, um, 
very much fond of its clement, uh, its clemency and its mercy, especially pre World War Two and even during World War One. Some of the uh, some of the acts of the Russian soldiers' officers and even Saint Nicholas II. I mean, Russia was known for its peace-loving, forgiving nature, and I'm not saying that. So, or neo-Nazis need to be forgiven. Of course, justice is very important here as well. And, you know, there does need to be some sort of new Nuremberg trial run by the Russians. And not even Nuremberg, I think, is a really loaded term, but there does need to be certain justice process carried out for those degenerates in the Ukraine today who carry out atrocities against the people of Lugansk and Donetsk. And in fact, the people of Lugansk and Donetsk, they're the ones who actually wanted justice to be carried out against the Azov Battalion combatants in Mariupol who were captured. Recall that they sentenced three or four Azov Battalion uh, you know, prisoners from Mariupol to death because they linked them to crimes committed against Donetsk and Lugansk in the last eight years. And what did the Russian Federation do? They simply granted amnesty. And in fact, now those Azov Battalion's uh, troops were actually carried on Abramovich's yacht to Turkey and then released back into... So this entire talk about this 97, 98-year-old 98-year-old uh, neo so <laughs> Banderite Nazi somewhere in Canada and he needs to be taken out like by some neo-Massad-type effort. I think it's just bizarre because the neo-Nazis who Donetsk wanted to execute legally, lawfully, in a Christian-like manner. And of course, we know capital punishment is very much in the Christian way of doing justice to the criminals who actually deserve it. It wasn't It wasn't done because the Russian Federation's justice system took over and it took those prisoners from Azov and actually transported them back to Turkey on a, on the yacht of an Israeli citizen, Abramovich. Like, this is this is wild, I'm sorry, maybe I'm getting a bit too passionate, but you look at the entire picture, not just one event, and the entire thing looks like a, a, giant, um, a giant mosaic, and it's not a pretty one either, it looks like something out of Picasso. Either way, I think it's important to just keep a keep a broader view of the picture and just not to hyper focus on one particular event and just see things for what they really are, which is in fact these uh, bizarre events in the sinful world, which build a build a build a broader view of exactly what's taking place. I think even though I think our analysis differs from that of other people, we do like to take a more or less objective, maybe Christian opinion of these events, even if it doesn't even favor our side, for example. Like, I think we are, do we tend to be even critical of Russia sometimes? And I think it's for the better. And the interview of Gabriel Doroshin actually underlined that for me, because he loves Russia. He moved to the, he moved to the Donbass, he moved to Donetsk, he married a local Donetsk woman. And in fact, this, uh, I guess you could say almost the future heir to the Russian throne, you could say, you know, uh, futuristically, he, this orthodox aristocrat, actually did say that, look, Russia isn't doing everything right, and certain things can be fixed. So I think we have this like a positive, constructivist view of the entire conflict, and the, especially the political scene which is occurring over there in Eastern Europe. I think that's really important, just to not exactly be tempted by propaganda. Yeah, I think uh, we're getting close to the end of the time here, but I think we gave some good analysis on everything that's going on. But... Uh, you talked about Gabriel DeRoshan. I think we should try to get him on the show sometime soon. So I think we're going to be working on that. But with that being said, everyone needs to be sure to check out episode 18, the most recent episode of Ether Hour, our biggest one yet. It's absolutely free, not behind the paywall. However, we would appreciate it if you would listen to it, like it, and then go behind the paywall to hear the other episodes. You know, we can't do this without the support of the people subscribing on worldwarnow.substack.com. But we interviewed Abbot Trifon. It's part of our uncanonized saint series. We discuss Elder Dimitri of Santa Rosa, who very little is known about, especially in the English language on the internet. Well, really in any language on the internet, as he was, as they say, glorified in America. He reposed in 1991. 
And there's some stuff, Abbot Trifon tells some stories where, you know, you're not going to hear it anywhere else. And we hope that he will be canonized very soon, a real fantastic saint of our time. And we're also, next episode of our Ether Hour, we've already done the interview. We will be releasing an interview with Father John Whiteford. We talk about the Malankara Russian Orthodox situation of a possible union there, the current situation in the Vatican and the persecutions, as well as the latest publications on the Council on Foreign Relations about priests in America and how they're apparently potential spies for Putin and the Russian regime. So look forward to that. But we've basically hit all of our nodes here. Dimitri, anything else you want to say about the situation in Israel or Ukraine? I mean, there's news going on everywhere. So I'm sure we could just stay on and talk. But what what do you what do we let's let's kind of wrap this up, I guess. Yeah, only that um Again, uh, most of these events, of course, we we do not live in Palestine, Israel. So what we receive is basically from mainstream and alternative media. And we do need to be aware that, look, a lot of these sides are using these materials, like the footage of the soldiers, the footage of the victims. We're getting a lot of um, very pretty explicit photographs of the, of the victims of both sides here. And again, this is what usually happens in these particular local skirmishes and conflicts is that victims emerge very quickly. And of course, photographs and footage of victims, and it's it's all very gruesome. It's similar to the Vietnam War, which was essentially won by, you could say it was won for the Vietnamese by the hippie peace-loving movement who for somehow obtained photographs and footage of what the Americans were doing to the Vietnamese locals, to the Viet Cong, and some, somehow like pushed it in a certain direction you could i mean that's just one version of how the vietnam war went obviously there's multiple factors but the peace movement at home because they actually received first-hand footage very very soon after the events took place pressured the american government into actually um signing a peace treaty with the north vietnamese and so de facto it was a surrender so in fact wars are very different these days again the ukrainian conflict on the other hand does show us that a conflict and war could continue in the modern world despite all of the explicit footage being portrayed and in fact some people can be agitated and frustrated to such an extent that no matter what they view on the internet or what kind of uh, you know things they see peace will still not be worth it in fact peace may be uh, maybe like for the ukrainians it's a it's a losing condition and for the russians and in fact peace may not be an option even though peace may be sometimes uh, you know the best case scenario in this particular case i'm not sure what the right thing to do would be and again that's why my opinion is more neutral on this side although part of me thinks conrad that perhaps uh you know, perhaps a more pro-Palestinian position is the right one, considering they are the underdogs and considering Israel is supportive of Ukraine and Israel is the main ally of the United States. And the United States is the is the large military industrial globalist complex, which, again, pushes this degenerate, um, you know, this degenerate ideology around the world. Israel being the main recipient for whatever reason of not just vaccines and Pfizer, but also of the alphabet community LGBT agenda. For some reason, Israel is consuming it as much as as much as anybody, if not more than, which is very, very bizarre. It's almost like the population is well, part of the reason in. Israel is in the situation, right? Part of the reason Israel is in the situation it's in right now is that the ultra Zionists are completely replacing the liberal secularists in the cities demographically. So of course, Likud is basically going to be permanently in power demographically. So the extreme expansionist version of Zionism is going to come to the fore, which is the reason this conflict is happening. It's why the Golan Heights happened. It's why all this went down. And if you just listen to Bishop Hannah of the Jerusalem Patriarchate, I mean, it's basically, it's pretty obvious you want to side with the Palestinians. There's no Orthodox authority that has spoken positively of the state of Israel, whereas the Jerusalem Patriarchate, also if you're Armenian, those churches have talked about it. Even the local Catholics and Anglicans have talked about it. 
but you know the Jerusalem Patriarchate, even other Greeks like Metropolitan Neophytos has talked about this in Cyprus as well. The the Israeli authorities are moving in on these monasteries and the Christian quarters. And actually, uh, Abbot Trifon mentions this in our interview with him. He mentions that as right before you know they were reaching despair in their life on Vashon Island on the monastery, they weren't able to pay their rent, so they were going to go to Jerusalem and inhabit ancient skeets and monasteries in the desert to prevent them from being taken over by the Zionist authorities. But instead, you know, you have to listen to the episode to hear why he and how the miracle occurred where he was able to stay on Vashon Island. But again, just we, I guess if we're on anyone's side, we're on the side of the Orthodox Christian remnant in the Holy Land. And obviously we don't want any conflict to break out because they would then be caught in a perhaps possible crossfire. But there's been conflict there for hundreds and hundreds of years and decades. It's sort of been just a suppressed ongoing war. And so if it's going to come to a close, I have no problem saying that I would hope for the Zionist authority to no longer be in charge when it's all said and done. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty good episode. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it. I Obviously, this these news is simply transpiring. We're simply recording this seven or eight hours after the, I guess you can call it almost the third intifada. We're not sure what it would be called the next time you hear our recording, perhaps next week, but uh, it will be very interesting. Perhaps maybe we'll even do a live stream, depending on how how the situation develops on the ground. But our initial thoughts, I think, will be will remain unchanged, no matter what occurs, even if it escalates or if this conflict dies down. I think that uh, despite the fact, uh, despite any fact, I think that Israel will remain this particular hot zone. And essentially, as Alexander Dugin recently commented, it is uh, whatever happens in this region is eschatological, just simply by simply because it is where the last chapters of history will take place. The Armageddon. The reign of the Antichrist, the Third Temple, which even Hamas mentions uh, in their own Islamic understanding of it. So, of course, we Orthodox Christians know that, and our prophecies, like the prophecy of Methodius of Potarsky, they do speak about this. Which you know, at the end of the world is will take place in this particular zone. It's not exactly the most positive of places geographically, especially after the crucifixion of, of Christ and after the massive amounts of persecutions which have taken place here. Well, in St. Paisios, he talked about, again, the collapse of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the end of the state of Israel as it is known since it has been since the end of World War II. But, you know, we're leaving you here. I'm sure by the time you're listening to this, Operation Iron Swords will be underway. That is basically what the Israeli government is calling their impending counteroffensive in this new war. So that will be being undertaken. We're watching Hezbollah and we're watching Saudi Arabia, Iran, Lebanon, Jordan and Egypt, because that's going to be what makes or breaks this. Because as of now, it's most likely Israel is going to retaliate with a vengeance and really, really punish the Palestinians. So, with all that being said, worldwarnow.substack.com, subscribe, listen to our latest episodes. We're going to have episode 18 with Abbot Trifon, as well as our new Heavenly Jerusalem episode linked below. So, be sure to listen to that free one and then get behind the paywall to hear the really deep lore, because that's an episode that just can't be public, can't be put anywhere but Substack. So, you're going to have to check that out. But yeah, follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. That's Gnome with a G. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. Follow the World War Now Telegram, World War Now Telly. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, World War Now. Like the videos there, share and comment. We're about to hit 3,000 subscribers. So be sure to do that. Uh, be sure to follow us on Rumble, World War Now. And again, worldwarnow.substack.com is where everything is at. And yeah, if things keep going, we may have to do a live stream this week. So with all that being said, Dimitri, I'll let you send us off. Thank you guys for watching again um you know exciting like pretty crazy news happened this week but again we give you guys all the content we can and we, you know we again we did 
on our one-year anniversary. We did take a week off, but we appreciate all of your support and especially all of our Substack subscribers. You guys make all this happen and definitely all future projects are thanks to you and thanks to the time and, and, the, and the money you've provided. So thank you all for all the sponsors and uh, the support. Again, uh, feedback has been really good recently and especially constructive feedback provided in our DMs in the Substack comments and we've taken a lot of things on board. So we, you know, we always appreciate it. And these things go a long way, especially for independent content creators who essentially have no strings tied to any organizations or businesses and um, essentially are for all intents and purposes, nonprofit, except for the fact that, look, we, we still put a lot of time into the research and the content that we give you. And, you know, hopefully it's quite enjoyable. So thank you guys for all your time and God bless. From the river to the sea.